This morning's scripture passage is from Hebrews chapter 3, and I'm going to reread a little portion of chapter 4. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they are always going astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any should be seen to have uh, failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed... Enter that rest. If you were here in May, my first sermon, I told you we would talk about apostasy a little bit later in the series on work and rest, knowing that I was going to preach this passage. Um, I um, probably have spent more time developing it then, but uh, I want to talk briefly about it today because it is uh, this idea of falling away that is juxtaposed with entering God's rest. And as we want to understand entering God's rest, we have to understand why it's put in a context Uh, that it is. So let's pray to that end. God, as we come to your word, we do pray that your Holy Spirit will be active, helping us to understand it, to receive it, to believe it, uh, applying faith, strengthening us and helping us. We pray that this time would be beneficial to our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace, and that it will glorify you. And God, we pray that whatever I say that is not of you, uh, I will forget to say it or it will be forgotten. Uh, Especially in such a difficult passage, we pray for extra Uh, mercy and direction through your spirit and in the name of Christ. Amen. So I mentioned to you uh, a a fellow who left his wife and five kids. Uh, Well, in the same church, I knew another guy who did the same thing. Five children, young kids. And this guy was uh, otherwise very impressive to me. He was, um, he he had what I could see, a a good marriage. He enjoyed his job. Uh, He was involved in the life of the church. He was very gifted his children were well-behaved. He had many godly characteristics. He was using his gifts, and uh, he was smart and studied. He had straightened me out on a few things. Um, I, I thought in every way he'd be a good elder or even a pastor. 
Uh, but then he suddenly left, suddenly to me, uh, he left his wife and family and his, his life quickly tanked. Um, his, his wife was left trying to scramble for a couple jobs. The kids were hurt, confused. The youngest do not remember their father. They started having behavior problems at school. Uh, she had to persevere through tremendous stress. And eventually she remarried uh, too quickly. And her new husband ended up abusing her children. Um, very sad. You can see the, the series of dominoes that occurred from this, this one event. Um, and typically, and what you'll see in the passage today, is that an event like that has a progression that you can watch. And you can enter in to that progression and, and try to uh, help it. In this case, I did not see it, except there was the only indication I have. The one, the one thing I could point to was at some point, and I, this was in retrospect, I remember his wife saying that when they got pregnant with the fifth child, when she told him this, he fell to his knees and desperately pleaded for rest. We need rest. And if you've been listening to this series on work and rest, you know I've spent more time talking about rest than work. That was the only indication that I had of what is otherwise a progression of what we call apostasy, what the scripture here says, falling away. It says in verse 12, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So simply put, this is when someone says they're a Christian, you think they're a Christian, they're walking in the Christian circles, they're participating in church, and then one day they're done. And they're, they're refusing uh, the faith at that point. Uh, and perseverance... In faith is the work that is opposing apostasy. And we see that in this passage too in verse 6 and verse 14. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And then verse 14. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now most of you are reformed folk and you know that God will lose none. Jesus will lose none that the Father has given to him, that he has begun the good work and he will finish it. And if you are in fact the elect of God, it is sealed from, from before the foundations of the earth. The question is, do you have a list of those names? You don't. And so you don't know the mind of God in this. And so you have to live by decisions that you're making every day. And you have to watch the flock and see what decisions they're making. And there is a progression. And therefore we should have some concern and some fear as the scriptures warn us that this is a reality that happens to some people. And there are steps that we will look at. That we will be careful to understand what it means to go the opposite way and take the steps that are entering into God's rest and having the freedom and the refreshment of the gospel that we need each and every day. So I'm going to look at this in three points. You know, we're Presbyterian, right? We've got to have three points. Uh, the first one is that we must avoid the deceit of sin. You want to enter God's rest? You want to avoid unbelief? Then you have to deal with the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 12, again, take care, brethren. There's a warning here. And as you scan the passage, you can see that the Israelites were in sinful unbelief. Look at verse 8. He says, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Verse 9, they put me to the test. They provoked me. They're always going astray. They have not known my ways. Verse 12, 
See to it that you don't have an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away. Verse 13, they were hardened by deceit. Verse 18, disobedient. Verse 19, unbelief. So in this passage, it teaches that this falling away, which is a lack of perseverance in faith, is from unbelief, which is from a hardened heart. We see unbelief in verses 19 and 12. Look at 19. We see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And then we see the hardening of the heart in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Or don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. And it mentions it further in in chapter 4. And finally, in verse 13, it says that a hardened heart comes from the deceitfulness of sin. So let me break it down again. Apostasy or falling away is a lack of perseverance in faith. Which means you are not entering God's rest. Which is due to unbelief. Which is due to a hardening of your heart. Which comes from the confusion and deceitfulness of sin. Which is to say, as I've mentioned before in this series, that when you enter into willful sin, you're entering into a, a whole system. And you are, uh, you are acknowledging, let's acknowledge right now, that when you willfully sin, it is an act of unbelief. It is the first step in that progression. So question, how is willful sin an act of unbelief? It's a way of telling God that his promise, his ways, his love, a relationship with Jesus isn't good enough. So you've got to help him out with the blessing that you think you need. So you want to medicate yourself. Something's bothering you. You're not feeling that abundance of life that God has promised. His way seems to be more difficult. And so you want to turn and medicate yourself. You want to do something that promises you life. And you know it's wrong and you do it willfully. That's unbelief. That's saying that God isn't good enough. You can do it better. And when you begin that process, sin pollutes your thinking. So unbelief promotes sin and sin promotes unbelief. They go together in the process of hardening the heart. Just like Romans 1 says, uh, by their unrighteousness men suppress the truth. Their thinking becomes futile and their foolish hearts are darkened. So question, how does sin create unbelief? The answer is here in the text that it confuses the truth in its deceitfulness. It has a corrupting quality. Verse 13, do not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It blinds us. Let me ask you a question. When are you deceived? When you know it or when you don't? That's why the author is warning us that your heart will betray you. You think you understand it and you think you got it and you think you know what you're doing, but you will confuse and muddy your thinking as you embrace willful sin. And this is easily seen by the illustration in the text. The Israelites. You know, their life is a metaphor for our life. They're in the bondage of Egypt. And that's for us the bondage of our sin. And God miraculously delivers them as he miraculously delivers us. And he takes them to the wilderness where he is teaching them to gather manna, the bread from heaven, to feed upon Jesus every day. And he's got purposes for them. That they would walk in those purposes. To go to the promised land. 
to execute his justice and his mercy and his faithfulness in all the earth. And along the way, they make a golden calf. And then I like the King James. After they had celebrated the golden calf, they were aroused to play. And you see the reason for that idol is debauchery. They wanted to, to experience a little bit more, more vitality than the desert seemed to be providing them. And of course, later on, they complain and they rebel. And you see that throughout. And if you're familiar with Numbers 11, you know at one point, they're tired of eating manna. And they say, we want meat. And God responds by driving in quail with a mighty wind that they would be three foot deep for miles around the camp. Do you think God was trying to make a point? I mean, God is saying, I can deliver meat anytime I want to. I can do anything I want, but I want you to be feeding on the bread from heaven. And you got tired of that? Well, guess what? You're going to get tired of eating meat too. He says, you'll eat it so much that you'll loathe it and it'll come out your nostrils. And instead of getting the message that God is sending of his power, that he has purposes in their life, you know what they say? Let's go get some meat. You know, squeaky wheel gets the grease. We're finally getting God to do what we're demanding of him. This is great. See, they've, they've, by their complaining, they've justified what they think is a need. They've muddied the issue, and now they go forward into deeper sin. Finally getting some meat around here. It's not getting better, though. It's falling apart. And God, in his anger, strikes them with a plague, and they call that place the graves of craving, because that's where they buried people who had craved other food. And that has stayed with me through my, most of my Christian life. That is such a punchy statement. And I ask myself and I ask you, what other food are you craving? What is the way that you think as turning away from God that you will secure some abundance in living? That's important for you to know what your pet sins are. And if any of you have had experience with substance abuse or with the use of pornography or even gossip... You know that, that you have a law of diminishing returns. That as you step into that world, it pollutes your thinking. It changes your, 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 your mental chemistry, your brain chemistry. And, and as you go further and further and further, you need more and more and more to, re, to achieve less and less and less of what you think is vitality. And so these idols, they steal from you. As you allow sin, you have to justify it and your heart gets hardened and you, what you're trying to do, folks, is trying to enter in to that idol's rest. That's why you go to an idol. You want its rest. And God's rest is available to you in the gospel. And it is real, and it is free, and it is loving, and it is satisfying. But we are in a, in a, a struggle in this life. Now, I've... I have a friend whose father's an FBI profiler. And he says that every sexual offender, violent offender, and every serial killer that they've arrested in their residence are stacks of pornography. That just tells you that it's part of a system. It's not a simple indulgence. It's part of a progression. It does corrupt your thinking. Disobedience contradicts God's rest. So, knowing that, knowing that you will deceive yourself, 
take care, brethren. Point one, this is real. Be, be acknowledged, be, be aware, this will happen in your life and people are around you. And then point two, after he says take care, he says exhort one another. And how often are you to do that? Every day. So one, be aware of the situation. Two, you need each other. You need to encourage one another. That part of God's rest is that you are, uh, the, the place of community is powerful. You are in a body. And you, again, if you're deceived and you don't know it, you need someone else's help. Are you humble enough to receive that encouragement from someone else? You know, when you remove temptations and vices, you need to replace them with something. You need to replace them with that relationship in the Word and through the Spirit. And you need to replace it with relationships with people, God's people, to encourage you. Not that you are to suddenly leave the world or not have relationships with those who don't know Jesus Christ. But you need that place of safety, that place of support. You cannot and should not try to go it alone. You do need accountability. You need folks who are praying for you and and helping you along. Because every day you have the opportunities to forget what Jesus has done. Every day you have the opportunity to take that willful step in the wrong direction. And every day the scripture says you should meditate on the word. And every day it says now we should encourage one another to do so. And I am reminded of a guy that I knew who was a big burly biker. And he was in a small group that I was in. And he was suffering and had lots of surgeries and didn't have money to pay for them. And his family was suffering And we as a small group were supporting and praying and helping with meals. And then we took a substantial love offering to help with the bills. And I remember after he had received that, he had come to small group and he sat there, this this guy with, I mean, the the big goatee and, and you know, all the biker gear. And and he was crying. He's so grateful for the body of Christ that we're trying to, to support and help that that in that moment, I think he was, he was sensing the presence of God. That you have the opportunity to be Jesus to one another. And you need to see Jesus and those around you. So seek that out and try to be that person to others. And what would you encourage them to do? Point three, that was point two. Point three is to persevere in the gospel. Persevere in believing the gospel. Now I need, I need to point out that the disciples in John 6 come to Jesus and they say, Lord, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That's a really good question, isn't it? That's a, that's a valid question. What should we do to please you? And Jesus says that the work of God is that you believe in whom he has sent. The work is to believe the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is not always as easy as you might think. And so this point three of, of, of entering God's rest through the gospel and persevering in it. I want to say that, that it's at one point it's definitive. It happens in history. It's, it's punctiliar. It is something that occurs and you now enter into in a state of existence. Okay. And chapter four it says that they heard the message. They were united by faith. Those who listened, and they entered into rest. So, 
there is the, the, the separation of the sheep and the goats. There are only two paths. In scripture, I've pointed this out over and over again. This is just another place where you see it. So there's a definitive sense that you enter into God's rest when you believe the gospel. When you become a Christian. When you say that I am a broken down sinner and I need Jesus Christ to be my substitute. You enter into God's rest in a definitive sense. But I want to talk about the daily gospel. That you need to enter into God's rest in an ongoing process of believing the gospel throughout life. As the man who comes to Jesus says, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. So let me give you some examples of this from everyday life. This happens to you every day. You have decisions of whether you're going to believe or wrestle with that unbelief. I'm driving the car. I've used these for years. This was when my kids were little. I'm driving and some guy cuts me off. And I get angry. And then a few minutes later, I catch myself in in this daydream where I've run this person off the road. And I'm pulling him out of the car. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Why are you so angry? And I thought, well, he, you know, he scared me. I'm, I could have been killed. And then I say, okay. And what's so bad about that? Isn't it to live for Christ or die as gain? Do you really believe that? Point one of unbelief. Not sure I fully believe that. I say, you know, Lord, I, I don't think that's all of it, though. What else am I afraid of in dying? And then I think, you know, the worst part about me dying is that these children are not going to have a father. And they're going to have grief and hardship their whole life. Next point of unbelief. I'm not sure God's going to be a father to my kids if I'm gone. I.e., I can do a better job of being a father to my children than God can. See how it's getting uglier and uglier? That's an opportunity for me to repent. Opportunity for me to have dialogue with the Lord and say, Lord, this is the area of unbelief. And this was exposed to something that happens on the street every day. Small events throughout the day, but at the bottom, at the root, there's unbelief. And then you have that opportunity to say, will I indulge in some angry fantasy and feel justified and strong and powerful, at least in my mind? Or will I come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry that I think I'm a better father than you. Help me as I come to Jesus in repentance and humble reliance on his grace. Let me give you some more examples. When I was running a painting business, Much younger in life, I went into Walmart dressed in paint rags to get a tube of caulk that I needed to finish something. And as I stood in line and I came up to the cashier, she gave me a little contemptuous snarl. Because, you know, she looked at my clothes. And I got upset. And in my mind, I thought, oh, you're better than me. You're a Walmart cashier. I have a degree. I'm running my own business, painting houses. And then it dawned on me, I'm doing the exact same thing to her as she did to me. And I'm living in the way of the world, where my righteousness felt stripped from me because of someone else's opinion. 
That happens to you every day, doesn't it? And if you think about the nature of gossip, where you're using someone else's brokenness to feed upon, you know, satisfy the emptiness that you have. It's dog-eat-dog. It's parasitic. God knows that you're empty. And he feeds you. He feeds you with bread from heaven. He's aware of that. We're not always aware of it. Again, another opportunity to say, Lord, I'm not sure I believe the gospel. I'm not sure I believe that you love me and that I'm defined by your righteousness because this person thinks I'm trash of the earth and it has affected me. Exposure of unbelief. Opportunity to repent. Another one. I was driving to Lexington years ago to get licensed by this presbytery. I had studied and I was ready and I took my exams and I was nervous on the way there. Why was I nervous? What am I afraid of? I'm afraid that I will perform poorly. That I'll be exposed as a whatever, a sucker. I know deep inside it's true. I don't want anyone to know it. How can I protect myself? There are times when I have to repent before I preach the gospel because I want you to like me and I want you to, uh, you know, to think I'm a good preacher. It's not about me. I have to tell myself that. You know what happened? I go and I do very well on the exam and I get praised for it. So about half an hour later, I'm driving home and I'm singing to God. I'm worshiping and I'm so happy. And then I say, why are you so happy? Oh, oh, you performed well. You got praised. You're not worshiping God. You're worshiping you. Unbelief. Opportunity to repent. To preach the gospel of grace to myself in an ongoing daily way. I could tell you more and more and more. It's all around you. The need to preach the gospel of grace and to persevere in it. Lest your heart gets hardened and confused in its paths of sin. As you try to take matters into your own hands and help God out. All right, a few more points from the text. In chapter 4, verse 2, it talks about being united by faith. That belief and faith go hand in hand. That this is an application of faith. As you wrestle with belief and unbelief throughout your daily life, you have to apply faith. You can't just sit there and say, I'm broken, I'm empty, what now? You say, God has made a way. Jesus Christ. Look at the beginning of the passage. Jesus Christ, who is greater than Moses, who is the Son to whom the house belongs to, who is the builder of your life. That Jesus Christ, you have to build that faith as you enter into God's rest, which is living not by the sensibilities that you have, but by God's word and revelation in his spirit. Another point, if you want to enter God's rest, it is benefit here and now, but it is not freedom from hardship. These people are wandering in the wilderness The folks who heard, I mean the audience of Hebrews 3, people who are going to be persecuted in serious ways. You know this life is unmanageable and difficult. So when you enter into God's rest, there is is respite. But we're waiting for that ultimate hope. The unadulterated rest. Where we will fully see God and know God and be with him. The lover of our soul. And the last point I want to bring up is that entering God's rest is still available. It's still possible. Verse 1 says that rest still stands. 
Verse 1, chapter 4. So the good news is still proclaimed. The news of Jesus Christ, let me proclaim it to you again. Hear it again, fresh and new. Jesus Christ died for you, having lived in your place the perfect life that you cannot live. That he is your substitute on the cross, that he bled and died so that you can be united to God forever. And that your hope is is the resurrection of your body. And the complete restoration and reconciliation of your soul. That now your body gets diseased, it gets sick, and it will die. But when God brings you back, you will be more divine. You'll be recreated more like Him, immortal. That is your heritage through the the cross of Jesus Christ. Not to suffer from your sins. See, God has interfered in this process that you you were confused and headlong in. Dead in your sins. God interfered with his grace and put his spirit upon you and brought you to life and is restoring you. And the opportunity for you to enter that rest in part is every day. But one day it will be fully consummated. That is good news. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ, having heard the good news, that you would be entering into the rest of God? I'm going to conclude with this. I knew a married couple. True story. Sorry, I have so many negative stories in my life. I don't know why. Comes with the job, I guess. They started conflicting. The conflict grew and escalated. Lots of opportunities to humble yourself, to say you're sorry, to repent, to listen to the voice of God through your spouse, but that's not what they happened. That's not what happened. They hardened their hearts, and the conflicts kept getting bigger and bigger and more dramatic. Eventually, she takes a job that has her traveling, and traveling especially over the weekends. She's going to nice places like Hawaii with a crew of people, while her husband is home alone on the weekend, having worked his job during the week. And now, she has separated herself from her church family. Surprise, she begins to have intimate feelings for a co-worker with whom she's traveling. Opportunity to repent, but instead she begins to spend more time with this coworker because it feels good and it feels right and it feels like like living. Finally, she tells him of her feelings, and he reciprocates. Can you guess what happens next? She commits adultery. Now she hates her husband even more so. As C.S. Lewis said, the Nazis killed the Jews because they hated them. But then they hated them because they were killing them. It's that process of sin and unbelief and the hardening of heart. She commits adultery and now she hates him all the more. So then she leaves him. And then the church comes in and they exercise discipline, which leads to excommunication. Can you guess the end of the story? She leaves the faith altogether. These situations are real, but I don't want to, I, I want you to be aware of this. Point one be aware, not only in yourselves, but in others. But point two, Encourage each other. Help one another. Support 
Hold accountable. Grow, humble yourself in the community of believers. Don't separate from them. You need them. And then three, fight the fight of faith as you wrestle against unbelief. Apply the gospel of grace each and every day that you would enter into the freedom that God wants. He wants to deliver you from that foolishness. He wants to deliver you from those false gods into true abundant living. It may be difficult, but one day it'll be bliss. And he's there with you now. He is here with us in this moment. God is so good. Have you responded to the good news in faith? Jesus Christ is here for you now. Come to him. Let's pray. Father, we confess, even in our disobedience, our self-righteousness that looks so much like obedience. And even then, Lord, we fail in unbelief. So God, expose these things to us. Open our our minds to them that we would repent and strengthen us to do so both by your spirit and by your people and by your word and all the means available to us. God, use this word to grow us as people of faith. God, we need you. We cry out to you and thank you, Lord, that you have begun the good work and you will finish it. And even if we go away in foolishness, thank you, God, that you discipline your children. God, we do pray for help and we do pray that you will lead us in the way everlasting. Thank you again, in Jesus' name, amen.